Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. To mark International Women's Day, we're dedicating all seven days this week to examining the challenges and triumphs of women around the world through art, sport, literature and politics. Change is never easy. It requires putting up a fight, going against the status quo. And if you're a woman, this may require you to be difficult. In 2020, Helen Lewis, staff writer for The Atlantic, joined us on stage to discuss the lives of some of history's complicated and contradictory fighters for female freedom and their refusal to conform to societal expectations. Helen was joined by Caroline Criado-Perez, journalist and author of Invisible Women, which is now also a podcast. And the conversation was chaired by broadcaster Samira Ahmed, who had just won the employment tribunal she brought against the BBC in a dispute over equal pay. Together, they examine why women who challenge the status quo are often seen as threatening or intimidating and why the fight for change is far from perfect. We meet, as Hannah was saying, after the conviction of Harvey Weinstein, brought about, of course, after a gradual growing of a group of women who were prepared to testify and support each other. Rose McGowan was perhaps the first, and she was mocked and slandered for daring to speak up. The death of the African-American NASA mathematician Catherine Johnson was marked this morning. She was 101. She calculated the trajectory of the Alan Shepard um, flight and verified the orbit calculation of John Glenn. She worked under racial segregation. And I have to say, when watching the film Hidden Figures and while celebrating her achievements, I have always wondered what they paid her compared to her white and her male colleagues. And the third story I have to mention is in the papers today, the landmark research by UCL's Institute of Health Equity, which found that women in particular are dying younger and have been affected more seriously by the impacts of cuts linked to the government's austerity policies over the last decade, particularly if they have children. I'm sure Caroline will have some thoughts about this. I've read both books. They are magnificent, brilliant landmark books in the history of feminism, so it's a real delight to be speaking to you. I feel like this is Michael Parkinson kind of question. Are you a difficult woman? I'm not a difficult enough woman, which is one of the reasons that I wrote the book, actually. Um, I'd always been a bit of a girly swat, I think, was to now use a, a very fashionable term. And actually, until I, the first chapter in the book is about my divorce, which happened before I was 30. And it was the first time, really, that I had done something that I thought made me kind of a, a bad girl, if you know what I mean, that I had done something that people would really strongly disapprove of. But that in itself was quite liberating because I think being a woman, you often feel that you have to be perfect in order to be taken seriously, right? You have to do the prep. Naming no names, Boris Johnson. As a man, you can often be encouraged to kind of wing it and people find that quite charming. And we don't really find that charming in the same way for for women. So, yeah, I'm hoping to become more sloppy and careless as the years go by. Caroline, what about you? Um, Yeah, so, I mean, there's an interesting story about this in that I often say that my heroine is Millicent Fawcett and that I strongly identify with Millicent Fawcett, who by the way I share a birthday with which I didn't realise till after the statue went up Um, but that sort of felt like you know, I have even more of a stronger claim I'm just like Millicent Fawcett and Helen disabuses me of this notion and tells me that if I'm anyone I'm Christabel, i.e. I'm completely out of control (laughs) and not to be trusted and uh, making a lot of noise and probably smashing some windows. So I like to, my, to think of myself as sort of, you know, 
this sort of intellectual, serious woman. Um, but I fear perhaps I am difficult. Although Car- Caroline, they've seen your Twitter feed. <laughs> sort of despite my, my best attempts not to be. And, and I'm also sort of, when I think about this, reminded of this moment when I was 11, when um, I first realized that I was being louder than all the other girls and that the boys didn't like it. And I had an instinctive knowledge this was not good. Um, and, and I genuinely made a deliberate attempt to try and tone it down a bit, but was unable to because <laughs> I'm such a loudmouth. So I guess I'm, I'm a difficult woman with pretensions to not be. <laughs> but one of the reasons that I find the story of women's suffrage so fascinating is that you need the two wings, right? You need Millicent and you need Christabel. And actually the reason, when they finally got during the First World War, the Speaker's Conference, organised by the Speaker of the House of Commons at the time, both Emmeline Pankhurst and Millicent Fawcett end up going to it. And they both sign up to the compromise, which is that women over the age of 30 who are property owners will get the vote first. And that's now often represented as this kind of, oh, I see middle-class women looked out for themselves. But you put it in context of the First World War, 1918, the first election in which women could vote, if all women had been able to vote, they would have been the majority of the electorate because so many men had died in the First World War. And what that does, I think, is put it back in context about what a radical thing these people were asking for, how potentially incredibly disruptive to male power they were asking to be. And it's to the discredit of both the Labour and the Liberal Party at the time that they thought women would be natural conservative voters. So they were always slightly reluctant about women's suffrage, with the exception of Keir Hardy, who was quite supportive. So you do need, I think, the Pankhursts drawing huge attention to the cause in this incredibly militant way. But you also need careful Millicent plugging away, doing big marches, gathering society in the National Women's Suffrage Society. And there's a brilliant bit in her memoir where she talks about going to dinner. um, And this man says to her, you know, now that the suffragettes are so militant, I find myself unable to do anything else for the cause of women's suffrage. And she says, I asked him what he had done before. Well, and let's talk a bit about the, the main historic fights of feminism that you chose to pick out in your book. Because you could only pick 11. I think there might be more than that. Yeah, I started off with eight and it kept growing every time. Um, but the reason I started with divorce, which I think people might think is an odd one, is that until you get proper divorce law reform, women do not exist as full citizens, right? But even this before the vote, to the very basic level, before that you were legally a ward of your father and then a ward of your husband, or, you know, nearest male relative. And that is still, you can see that still in Saudi Arabia in the guardianship mm-hmm. system, right? The idea that women are not full citizens under the law. They belong to someone else. They are essentially chattel. And it's not uh, until women... 1870 you get the Married Women's Property Act, which means that yeah. women can sign contracts and things like that for themselves. Well, I was also thinking, we talked about marriage certificates, the fact that women are invisible on them still. You know, mothers do not exist on marriage certificates, so you, you lose the whole... Well, yeah, because you don't need to know who the mother is, because the mother doesn't own any property. She's a no. woman. So, you know, obviously you need to know who the father is, because he is the person from whom the property, i.e. the woman, is transferring from. And you need to know who the husband is, because he is the person to whom the property is transferring to. And that is still the case on Do you know what's really interesting? Now. I always bring this up. Um, I studied Anglo-Saxon, and in Anglo-Saxon society, the closest kind of male-to-male bond was Swestra Sunu, which is the son of your sister, because you knew that that the son of your sister was definitely related to you. Yeah. Whereas you couldn't be sure where your own child was. Um, but that's a yeah, sort of women, side, side track. Women I, I just are, quickly, you know, Helen, sluts, run, right? We, we all know that. Yeah. But run through, um, if you can, just kind of quickly some of the other kind of key I battles. always forget one, and it's, like, it's like a sort of terrible cryptic challenge, right? Come on, we can do it. Um, so divorce is the first one, then the vote, then sex, um, which is a, a story about the history of contraception, but also about women's um, sexual pleasure. Yeah. So the most incredible story in that is of a French princess called Marie Bonaparte, who was heavily influenced by her friend Freud who had this theory that clitoral orgasms were like a bit something for kids and actually when you're a proper full-blown woman you should only have an orgasm through penetrative intercourse and now it doesn't work right if your clitoris is too far away from the entrance of your vagina you cannot that's just not physically possible some people would say get more creative Marie Bonaparte took a rather different view which was I'll have my clitoris surgically moved so she had the suspensory ligaments cut and guess what surprising enough that didn't work and I think it's it's I, I love her get up and go I admire that. But I also feel that it's a really sad story because she ended up having surgery in order to fulfill a, a model of sexual pleasure that was in, inherently Remind patriarchal. us when this was. This is around the turn of the, the last century. 
Um, and you know, and that's, that's the same thing now. Women are having cosmetic labiaplasty on perfectly normal genitals that they now mm. feel are sort of somehow disgusting. Half of women uh, in the labia produce outside the outer labia, but that's not something you ever see, particularly in pornography, right? Mm. So there are, there are whole loads of women who think that they are freaks when they are look perfectly normal looking. I want to connect to some of the modern battles shortly, but run through some of the others. Erin Pizzi, who set up the first women's refuge, is a fascinating character. This is my favourite story of all. So she set up the first women's refuge in 1971 in Chiswick. Incredible. The Domestic Violence Act wasn't passed until 1975. So until that point, you were talking about battered wives and people kind of thought this was a, a sort of byproduct of marriage it happened but maybe in kind of you know lower class homes it didn't happen in middle class homes and what she did was expose this huge huge problem um, but she's now a men's rights activist she now uh, is editor at large of a anti-feminist site called The Voice for Men and she says, you know, whose editor says that feminists are human garbage and he would never convict anyone in a rape trial. And to me that's a fascinating story, sorry I'm echoing slightly, um, of, of how people get driven out of the feminist movement or how people can do great feminist achievements without being feminist, which I think is the, in, in her well, case. Can I just ask, because I want to move on to talk more about today, but I want to talk a bit more about these past fights. I'm interested in how, in taking on say, someone like Mary Stopes, who's this incredibly important figure in bringing contraception to ordinary, particularly working-class women, she, is, you know, she was a eugenicist. Mm-hmm. Um, and is there a danger in... Not that you were trying to whitewash, but that... <laughs> They're tarnished tarnished too much by that other side of them. Or that you whitewash them by saying, but look what they did. Yeah, I I think that's a reasonable point. And the case of Mary Stopes, again, the context is is interesting. So after the First World War with so many men dead, there was a big groundswell about what about our birth rate. Uh, And one of the things that was held against women in the workforce, 1.5 million women went into the workforce in World War I, when the returning Tommies came home, it was now go, you know, go back out and go, go back into the home and, and do your duty and have loads of kids to repopulate Britain. And then overlaid with all these ideas about whether right people having children. And then you can draw a thread from that to today, right, where far-right men on the internet, and some women, talk a lot about white genocide and the great replacement theory, which has driven several mass shootings recently, this idea that Muslims are, with the conspiracy of the Jews, I'm never quite sure how this kind of works, but that they're conspiring together to kind of wipe out um, you know the white population. So those things are, those are, are, are a dark past that recurs again and again. When civilizations feel threatened, suddenly the focus goes on: Are women having enough babies? And are the right kind of women having the right kind of babies? And you're you know you're entirely right to raise Mary Stopes in that context because she, in 1939, she sent a volume of her love poetry to Hitler with a covering letter that said, "Love is the greatest thing in the world," and. And, I mean, that's also a story about how bad Mary Stokes' poetry was. Um, it's really very poor. Have you read it? I read some of her play, her 1924 play. It's honestly the worst thing I've ever read. And I've been to a lot of bad theatre. Um, but she was, you know, a lot of that is about her, her own self-belief in herself as a kind of messiah figure, right? Um, but a lot of it was she gave into that pre Second World War intellectual eugenicism that said, actually, you know, there are people at the top and they need to kind of tell everybody else how to live their lives. Um, And I think it's important to say, you know, that all happened before what we then see with Nazism and and the rise of that in the 30s. They were naive about where that strain of thinking would lead. But nonetheless, I think anybody now who, who talks about contraception, reproductive rights, has to be aware of that history, because it does still come up now. It does, particularly in America, where, you know, there's a history of um, African-American children with learning disabilities being sterilized without their parents' consent. And that, again, is all about the idea about who are the right people who are having children, and and who gets to control your fertility? Is it someone other than you? So you're right, we we can't whitewash, even though she was... You know, when you read the desperation of the letters that people wrote to us, I'm 36, and there's a letter from someone who's 37 who's already had 14 children. She says, nine of them still living. My inside is quite exhausted. And I worry that, you know, I'm going to die. If I, my doctor said, if I get pregnant again, I will die, and I will leave nine babies to practically starve. But no one would tell her how to make that not happen. Um, and that's, those are the people that Mary Stopes was talking to. And I think, again, it's when you... The story becomes more real and more human when you understand how you get from that to thinking, well, we should tell people how many children they can have. But I think also what's really great about Helen's book and what I really love about it is that it's the opposite 
of whitewashing, which is what so much, you know, feminist history recently written has been doing. You know, I think one of the things that Helen mentions is the story, is the points out about Coco Chanel, which was included in one of those compendiums of, you know, these amazing women from history. And it is important that we were, you know, rescue women from history because women have been systematically written out. But also, she was a Nazi, right? And that doesn't get included in the, you yes, know, hagiography that's written of her. And, and what I really think is incredibly important about Helen's thesis is saying that we don't... <laughs> that men are allowed to remain in history even when they were terrible people. We still learn about them and what they did. And women, that doesn't, you know, women are only taught about if they were saints. And of course, because no one is a saint, women either get written out or they get all their rough edges shaded off, which is also wrong, you know. And, and it, you know, it happens that someone yeah. is a Nazi and also designed great clothes. Like, I'm, he's a, so did Hugo Boss. You know, yeah. not so good. Was Hugo Boss a Nazi? He designed for the yeah. Nazis. He designed the uniforms. I, but I also I think that's a useful corrective to a tendency that I see in modern politics, right, about polarization and purity. And it, this kind of version of the end of history, like feminism has achieved its kind of final form now, and there isn't anything that we're now getting wrong, and there isn't anything that in 50 years people will look back and think is very weird. Can you just a favour and just quickly spell out the, the different waves in just a couple of sentences? Because I didn't, even I didn't know there were there four. Uh, well, I, I tried. The end of the book is me trying to launch Definitions a fifth. Definitions vary. Which is okay. which is a bit like, come on, guys, who's with me? And Between you two, why don't you tell us what are the four waves of feminism? <laughs> so the first, okay, the first wave is generally agreed to be female suffrage so um, different times in different countries I think New Zealand very early well done New Zealand uh, Switzerland very late 1971 <laughs> so basically yes, that's well done we're all turn very of the 20th, late 19th early 20th century yeah, there's some Kiwis in the house yeah. um, okay so and then the second wave second wave starts really late 60s uh, to, through the 70s and there's a burst of incredibly intense um, so you get the pill available in the NHS in the, in the 60s. You get the Abortion Act reforms in 1967, Equal Pay in 1970, Sex Discrimination Act in 1975, and then a whole load of other legislation that basically unpicks women's second-class status in, in law. Mm. Third wave is the 1990s, and that was really quite focused on sexual harassment. In the US, the Anita Hill case, where Anita Hill, a black woman, accused Clarence Thomas, a black Supreme Court justice nominee, of sexual harassment when she worked at his law firm. And he said it was a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks. Mm. Um, so he, he tried to set race and gender against one another. And, and, and that provoked a huge outpouring of women talking about sexual harassment really in the workplace. It also led to time. a huge increase in the number of women yeah. getting elected to Congress, which yeah. is interesting. So that was, and then I, I think the fourth wave is that wave of digital feminism, kind of post-Catlin Moran's How to Be a Woman, things like everyday sexism, um, and then coming right now through to, to Me Too. Okay. Thank you. I wasn't Wait, hang on. What's the fifth wave? Well, this is what I mean. This is why, if you remember from the end of the book, Caroline, which I'm I sure am you do, prompting you. For Are we in the fifth wave audience? now? So what I what so this is my this is my final thought in the book about what needs to happen now is I think that the, the last ten years have been incredible for consciousness raising, right? About women connecting each other, particularly through the internet. But what has, to some extent, slightly stalled are those big legislative asks, those big policy asks. You know, we've had 10 years of policies in, in austerity which have hit women hardest. Single parents have been incredibly badly hit. Social care budgets have enormously fallen. And the vast majority of that burden then switches on to women. So women's unpaid caring labour burden is, is even tougher now than it was 10 years ago. So my theory about what needs to happen is we're, we're angry. Let's turn that into an engine of change. Well, we come back to this issue of the, the protesters and, to some extent, the disruptors um, who might make headlines and the people who are quietly trying to work things through the systems, you know, getting parliamentary legislation through working through internally to change the way boards are configured. And I wondered what both of you make about the balance between the two. Um, I mean, I don't know if, Helen, you would talk about the, the women in the past. Um, I mean, you gave the example at the beginning of kind of Christabel versus um, Millicent. Um, but what's your view on, you know, is it inevitably a kind of a synergy? You need both. Yeah, it's a pincer movement, you know. Very good. <laughs> um, because you, you do need both. And, and I, I find it frustrating, you know, to return to the, the, the suffrage movement, how people sort of align themselves with one or the other. And you'll have people saying, oh, the suffragists were bloody useless. It was the suffragettes that won it. And you have people saying, if it hadn't been for the suffragettes, we would have got the vote, you know, 20 years earlier than we did. 
And the truth is that you did need both of them. You know, by the time the suffragettes came along, the suffragists had been plugging away for 40 years, it's true, and they had laid a lot of the groundwork, but also the press had got completely bored of them. (laughs) And, you know, there were a lot of nice men patting the suffragists on the head, but nothing was happening. And the suffragettes made people sit up and take notice. And you need both. You really need both. You need the hard work and you need the, the, the attention grabbing. And I think a lot of mistakes that are made in modern campaigning are people forgetting that you need both. So there are people who are very, very good at getting attention, but very bad at backing that up with, well, what do you actually want? Can I just say one thing, which is I want, because I was just thinking about um, this need to demand things. And I want to say this, I think it's really important because obviously you guys are all going to be campaigners and do great work. And one of the big mistakes I think that people make when they, start a campaign is they're not specific enough and so what's you the know, outcome you want right and so you know with the harvey weinstein thing do you set up a petition saying you know stop sexual assault i mean no you could but who is the person who's in charge of sexual assault that is going to be if able we to find make him sure that it, it's going to be right, brilliant it's going to be great like get that guy and, you know, how do you, you know, what are, the, what are the instruments? Like, how do we get him to decide that he's no longer going to allow sexual assault? You know, that, that's not how it works. You know, similarly, I couldn't start a petition, you know, end patriarchy. Like, who's the chief patriarch? And, like, what are his mechanisms for enforcing patriarchy? So, well, what I mean by that is that probably if I started a petition called end patriarchy, you'd probably get some attention because people would think I was mad. Um, <laughs> But it wouldn't achieve anything. And, and that's really one of the most important things that I try to get across when people ask me about campaigning. It's like, why are you successful? I think I'm successful because I have very specific asks and I know who the person is who is in charge of those decisions. And I, and I pummel them. Can I ask, um, Helen? Um, Not literally. What, what would you say are the kind of key fights of feminism today? Well, one of them I think is definitely the burden of unpaid caring labor there's um you know there's a thing that's often attributed to orwell it's apocryphal which says you know the trouble with socialism is it takes up too many evenings and i think there's a problem that that reflects for feminism which is the problem with feminism is that you have to break away from all your work to, to do it and um there's a quote from the suffragette hannah mitchell that said you know the greatest tyrant in my life is probably the cooking stove no cause can be won between dinner and tea And one of the reasons that the suffragettes were effective is they had some rich donors and they paid people to be essentially trade union organisers. This was the first generation of women who, at the age of 20, could come to London, live in their own flat, and be full-time organisers, political organisers. And it's why feminism and and activism has exploded in the last 10 years, is that the internet has meant that if you've got two young kids, you you know, and they're in soft play in front of you, you can be quietly scrolling through mum's net as you go, lovely dear, get on with it. Um, But it's really hard to find the time to do campaigning when you're doing a whole load of unpaid work on top of your main, already probably quite tough job. And so I think that's a, that's a huge thing. And then when I hear politicians with peons to, like, the traditional family, you know, what we need... Isn't it brilliant in Asian countries when, you know, the families really look after their old people? What they mean is where women's labour force participation is drastically limited. You know, in Japan, where women are kind of... You know, and, uh, more and more choosing not to get married, right, because they would rather have a job than have a, have a family, and it does feel like a straight for, a choice between the two. Um, and I think that, to me, is the fight that underlies all of the other fights. Is simply having the time to do all the other fights is a real challenge for so many women. What about you, Caroline? And I'm particularly interested in some of the issues that you looked at in your book, where you looked at, you know, how scientific research is based on, you know, such gendered data that it's actually making women unhealthy. I mean, even just something as simple as a seatbelt, but also things like, um, um, you know, medicines and drugs. And I wondered how far there's a feminist fight in that you're trying to sort of get going by having set out some of these examples? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, Samira, I'm trying to fix it. (laughs) But practically, (laughs) but practically, you know, Um, because some of these, like, you know, with drug trials, for example, is that about legislative change? Is that about companies? Well, it's about about everything. Um, It's about all of that. So, yeah, we need regulation um, because all the evidence shows that unless you have regulation, sex disaggregated data collection does not happen. Sex disaggregated data analysis does not happen. Um, 
And, you know, when we're talking about unpaid care work, you know, we're not even collecting data on how much women are doing. And we need to know that so that we know how to allocate resources properly, so we know how to design services properly. So, I mean, I, I agree with Helen that one of the biggest fights is actually women's unpaid care work burden because it is at the heart of so many inequalities, including the gender pay gap, including um, the health gap, actually, affects women's health. So, for example, women are more likely to die following um, heart bypass surgery than men. And one of the reasons for that is that when men go home from hospital, someone is there taking care of them. When women go home from hospital, they tend to go back into their caregiving role. Um, Similarly, this is another interesting little snippet for you. Married women have worse survivorship um, following a heart attack than single women, just and and also than divorced women. Just saying. Um, There's also that <laughs> research, isn't that says that um, they look at all the categories of people, and married men are the happiest, and married women are the unhappiest. Yeah, yeah. 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 Single childless women are the, the, are the happiest. Most happy, yeah. yeah, the happiest people are single childless women. Um, and also, you know, when you look at women who have been successful in their careers, they are also childless you know it's still very very difficult to get to the top while having children that is a disgrace you know the fact that in the 21st century women still having to choose between having a high-powered career and you know being fulfilled in their work life and having children which obviously a lot of women want to do as well, well as a lot of can men I, can can I just say that, that no, 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 let me button let me button because this is okay but we need data that's okay, what okay. I wanted to say. Uh, Helen. But one of the things was I looked through the book to say, well, am I, take, you know, am I being intersectional, actually? Am I looking at other, the way that other I- oppressions interact with women in it? And I realised that I had massively over-indexed in lesbians. So I was like, a lot of these people... Can I just say there's an amazing chapter about that lesbian MP? Maureen Colquhoun, the first openly gay MP, who came out in 1975 and listed her partner in Who's Who. Yeah, incredible. And let's just say it isn't that guy that everyone says it it's is. It's not Chris Smith, no. Yeah. He was the first person to come out voluntarily. She was outed by Nigel Dempster, the Daily Mail columnist, uh, without, you know, without her consent. But I realised, so there's her, there's Lily Parr, the pioneering footballer of the Another early 20th lovely century. Um, and there's uh, Sophia Jex Blake, one of the first women to study in a university in the Edinburgh Seven, who was also a lesbian. And I suddenly realised, well, what, is, you know, what links all of these women in their non-conformity? Well, the fact they were going to have to live non-conformist lives anyway, and actually the fact that a lot of them had essentially wives... Wives and no kids. Mm. So they were able to do, like, there is a long-standing thing, what does every woman need? A wife. Yes. And it would be like, it would make everything a lot easier. And, and, but you really see that with these women living unconventional lives, but supported by a female partner, and not having to make those hard decisions about the, between, between family and their activism. There are two issues as we move into discussing kind of uh, the feminist movement past and present. And I'm interested, firstly, in the kind of business of supposedly liberating women. So the fertility industry has grown massively over the last 30 years. And I have to say, it disturbs a lot of feminists I know. Um, the whole pressure to freeze eggs, um, which is sort of presented as liberation, that you don't need to be married and you don't need to kind of, you know, get pregnant by a casual person. And, and yet, of course, as we know, a lot of people travel abroad and they use the bodies of poor women in countries, um, in poor countries, uh, where you have these phenomena like essentially factories. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts about... I mean, that's quite an interesting example, isn't it, about an issue that's presented as being a kind of female choice, a kind of emancipation, and yet seems to have incredibly well, it's complicated putting the, Im- the, the, the pressure on the women again. You know, it's your responsibility to go through what is actually quite an invasive procedure. You've got to take all these hormones to produce all these eggs and then have them taken out of you, with, by the way, no guarantee that it's going to even work, Um, rather than approaching it from a perspective of, well, do we as a society have a responsibility to enable families, young families, to be able to have children, you know, if we are concerned about having a workforce, for example, that's going to support people in their old age, you know, provide money for the pensions, do we need to replace the workforce? Well, yeah, we do, one way or another. It's either going to be immigration or it's going to be, you know, enabling people to have children. Maybe a combination of the two. But, but what's the way to do it? And, and I find it very interesting that, as ever, um, 
in politics today. We put the responsibility on the individual rather than mm. on the society. But also on the obsession with having your own baby, even if it's born through a surrogate, rather than I've always thought about all the unwanted children. I know it's not as simple, but I do remember, and I think if I can give a personal... I just remember when I got married... Um, I knew that uh, my husband and I knew we wanted children and I remember saying to my husband around the time we were starting to try for a child I said if for whatever reason it turns out we can't have children we'll just try and adopt it just for me was a feminist line that I wouldn't cross to go into invasive surgery and certainly not to use surrogate but anyway what are your thoughts about the, the fertility no, I, business I think that a lot and I think um, Julie Bindler's written a lot about surrogacy particularly as you say the kind of outsourcing of it to places like India uh, and the contracts that surrogates are, are made to sign. And there is a review that's going on at the moment into surrogacy laws, because currently the idea is that it has to be um, benevolent, right? You, can't have a, you can get, pay someone's expenses, but you can't pay a contract with them. And to me, that seems quite a sane way of making it genuinely altruistic in the way of, of you know, not giving blood is a very poor example because it's nowhere near the same level of commitment. But I think by turning that into a commercialised industry, who is going to end up being a surrogate? It's not going to be any of us three, right? It's, not, it's, it's going to be poor women and it's going to be migrant women. And a lot it, of students it, in America. And it's going to be women yeah. being used as, as a resource. And this is something that I talk about in the book. Often now the deepest and most tricky fights for pro- progressives to see where they land on are the ones between oppressed groups. So, for example, there are a lot of gay men now who want to have a family mm. and therefore use a surrogate. And do we celebrate that as, isn't it lovely that everybody now can have a family? Or do we say, who's having the baby for you? Is it your friend or are you paying someone to do that with all the risk of that Well, involves? you've brought me really nicely to this very interesting issue about the second wave feminist movement, which was very closely linked to some other radical movements, uh, like socialism and like the early gay liberation movement. And I remember interviewing the film director, John Waters, um, and he, he said the whole thing about being gay was that you weren't like the heterosexual patriarchy. And so he finds it bemusing that you have this huge rise in gay couples wanting to, in his view, he would argue, replicate that system. He's not necessarily saying people shouldn't have the right to, but it's certainly not what a lot of people who were campaigning for those rights at the time thought they were fighting for. Um, I thought that was an interesting observation, isn't it? It's really interesting. And it, I think it, it sort of exposes the power of the social norm, right? That we see the way things are now as the default, as just the natural order of things. And anything that deviates from that is slightly weird. I mean, you probably see where this is going. Obviously, I'm going to start talking about the default male. But I do find that very, very interesting, the way that because the way we've designed our world, because of the data we've collected, because of who's been charged, been in charge, has been so heavily dominated by male bodies and male perspectives that that just seems like the natural order of things. And so you end up thinking of women as sort of this weird niche aberration. And, and the way that pr- crops up, really interestingly, I think, even in attempts to sort of fix uh, gender discrimination issues. So, you know, in the workplace, you'll find um, these really well-meaning uh, policies of, well, we'll, we'll uh, give women confidence training, you know, we'll teach them to negotiate yeah. so they can get better salaries. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, the, the, the research shows that women are asking for pay rises as much as men. Mm. They're less likely to but, get them, though. Yeah. But, but what I find really interesting about that is not so much that it's based on flawed data, as why are we assuming that men are negotiating the right amount? Why are we assuming that mm. men are asking, like, maybe men are asking for too many pay increases? Mm. But we don't, we don't question male behavior because it's the norm and I think that that's a really mm. interesting analog I just want I know you want to interrupt me but I just want to say things no, so one no, thing no, that no. I, I just think want is to really cover funny, all the questions we have one thing that's really funny which is um I I love this study that I found it's probably going to divide the room but it found that actually women are quite good at assessing their own intelligence right they're, they're, they're relatively accurate at determining their intelligence um but men of average intelligence think that they're more intelligent than two-thirds of people, which is adorable. But if you apply it, if you apply it to the, uh, the workplace and who is asking for promotions and who is asking for pay increases, you, know, you start to think, well, maybe a system that is designed around leaving it up to them to decide who deserves one is a little bit flawed if you've got half of people thinking that they're much better than they are. 
Um, but anyway, so the, yeah, but the no, point no, is, is that I think it, it, what's interesting about that is that even in a situation where you're trying to improve the, 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 the prospects of women, you're still taking men as the baseline Absolutely. and thinking, how can we make women like them? And I think that's a really interesting Well, analog. the one contribution I'd say I've made to feminism is my realisation, the, the one contribution I'd say I've Only made to feminism. I mean, I think the whole on, tribunal Samira. was quite a big one, <laughs> Well, the one that I thought up myself rather than finding myself in a situation with is that I, I kept being sent to cover A-level results every year when I was at Channel 4 News and, and every year girls seemed to be creating a bigger gap with men and then people started talking about how we have to worry about boys but, and I realised after a few years of doing this that this apparent advantage in results at A-levels never actually translated into any kind of advantage, not even equality in the workplace and why was that? And it's exactly what you just said which is schools teach girls that if you do your best and there's a, um, a fair marking system you will thrive and you might even outperform and yet the world doesn't function that way. And my biggest thing, I go into schools all the time and universities, and I just tell them, I wish I'd known this at 17, that, you know, I'm not saying that... And then the whole lean in, you know, here's a seminar on how to lower your voice and negotiate. I mean, that's all, as you say, it's, it's avoiding the underlying issue, which is there isn't a fair system. That but that, our education is one work. of my favourite examples of the way that arguments about the innate difference of male and female brains have just dramatically crumbled in the last hundred yeah. years. So you get a situation when the first women go into universities in the late 1800s and people say things, well, the thing is, women's brains are smaller. And they are smaller by an average, by about three ounces. Is it something like that? Why are you looking at me? Well, you, you're like stats. <laughs> you're like stats woman. Well, um, I, okay. Ask me about car crashes. Like, no. I'm really good on that. Anyway, because, you know, women, because women are smaller on average, right? It's like, proportional to body size. But also, that it's, it turns out, not a, not a problem. Um, so women finally get into the universities. And guess what? Now the majority of undergraduates are female. The majority of women on taught masters are female. It's only when you go to research masters and PhDs that they get a majority male. The majority of medical students, undergraduate medical students, are now female. And mysteriously, all the people who used to argue the thing is, maybe men are just more intelligent, aren't going, the thing is, maybe women are just more intelligent, right? <laughs> it's now about a rigged system that is not doing boys. And I think that's one of my classic examples about the fact that actually it turns out that when you try and argue back down to nature, those arguments are really, really shaky. <laughs> There's one issue I really want to bring up before we open it up to questions, which is um, how far there is a sense of conflict, particularly between younger feminists um, and, and, and older feminists. And there's a, a great line in your book, Helen, um, so I'm taking it out of context, but you can perhaps recontextualise it, where you talk about how some current feminism can seem to be more like self-help under a thin, sugary glaze of activism. Um, and, and I just wonder if you could spell out a bit more about what your concerns are. Yeah, I mean, I think feminism is, is, gets kind of co-opted. When it seems like a hot new thing, then it's very tempting for, um, for corporates to kind of co-opt it and turn it into a kind of branding exercise for themselves to make themselves look better. So, you know, um, I've got a relative who works in a quite high-power business, and she says, you know, I don't understand why when we do these discussions about... Uh, you know, gender, then all the women are kind of supposed to go off and solve the, the fact that there aren't enough women at the, you know, a board level. It's like, well, how do we get landed with this? And, and I think there's a lot of that. I think there's also, uh, Caroline and I went to a tech company, I won't name, um, which had signs on its loose that said, you know, self-identify women, welcome here. You know, this is a company that respects people's gender identity. It's also a, co a company which has a huge amount of misogynist abuse on its platform. And it was one of those kind of classic symbols of like, here's what you say because you think this is the kind of mantra to recite to make you look progressive versus here's the thing that would actually affect your bottom line that you are systematically unwilling to deal with. And I see that so much. And I think that there's a kind of synthetic feminism that is in, kind of encouraged because it seems like, it's, like there's a lot of noise and a lot of energy generated. But you know what? The same people still end up being in power. How's, how's that happen? Some of that is obviously about how corporates are, are using it as a, as a marketing tool. But there is a generational element to it. Some younger um, people have... I, I, do, I do notice people getting very angry and without wanting you to necessarily have to go into you know, abusive experiences, you're both very honest about um, the fact that you do get trolled and you do get kind of given grief. But don't you think that comes back exactly to what you were saying earlier about I thought it had all been sold with kids? 
Because I think when you're in your 20s, particularly if you're a young graduate woman, you are working like a man and probably hopefully earning like a man. And you think, well, this is, you know, why, you know, and, and issues of representation matter more to you and, um, and, and appearance matters more to you. And then you hit your 30s and you suddenly see talented women dropping into part-time work, taking a less prestigious job, coming out of academia, those very demanding, because they just can't do it anymore. And I think there is a kind of assumption that things are much further along than they are. And I think as you get to every generation also, you know, your priorities change. Now I'm obsessed with care labor because I see so much of the women in my kind of cohort affecting them. You know, 10 years ago, those weren't my priorities at all. I'm sure in another 10 years, my priorities will be, will be different again. And actually, where are the spaces where, you can hang, where I can hang out with 50-something, 60-something women? Where would I meet in real life second-wave feminists? Well, there apart you go. <laughs> at, the, uh, at the meet and greet afterwards. But, but I think it's also that, that, you know, because this, the way that older women are sort of disposable in our society. Literally invisible. And so, right. And so we don't have this sense of history. And I think... And respect. And respect. And, and knowledge of how hard they had to fight and how recent the gains that we take for yeah. granted are and how precarious they are as are well. Are there any particular examples of gains that you think some younger people are not aware of? I think some of the ones around... I always think abortion as a right in this country isn't appreciated. Well, I mean, I think most people don't know that we don't actually have abortion on demand in this country. No, it's you know, abortion is actually still a criminal yes. offence. Like, it's still in the criminal law. Um, there is the abortion act is an exception so if it's you get two doctors right if you get two doctors to sign off that it will harm your health then you can have an abortion but if you were to just go and have an abortion it would be illegal and technically you could be sent to jail for life. So actually the phrasing is penal servitude because it was written in the Victorian era. Um, yes, the Offences Against the Person Act, 1864. Yes. Um, oh, shut one... up, Helen. You're such a swat. <laughs> you do statistics, I do weird laws. Um, <laughs> 1991, uh, rape in marriage was, was the case law. That's when it was officially said, no, actually, it's, it's possible for a husband to rape his wife. Until that point, it was like, you've said yes once, you've said yes forever in all circumstances. I find that, bo- like, you know, that is... More recent than the Hubble telescope. Well, the, did but you see the papers? What's... But just on that issue, did you see the, the papers today? Um, because there was a, a family court judge who ruled that a, a woman who was in a family dispute about the custody of the child said she'd been raped by her husband. And the judge said, well, she hadn't physically fought and therefore it couldn't have been a rape. No, and it was, it was overturned. Um, but it was really interesting that, you know, 30 years? Is it 30? Yeah, I've because it takes a while that. for legal... I mean, you'd think... a, a judge would know better but it it takes a while for legal change to translate into social change and one of the things that I found really interesting about the coverage of the Weinstein case has been how they've pointed out how these are actually difficult women they're not women who were raped and then went away and never spoke to him again they were women who carried on having a working relationship with him because actually that's very normal in this kind of scenario they didn't have the power to just go off and fend for themselves and be their own person and be their own boss they were in this very complicated situation life is complicated hello um and you know and so this is so long what is it i can't do maths 30 i've written a book on stats hello um Anyway, it was a long time ago since that, that law was passed saying actually you can be in a consensual sexual relationship with someone and have them rape you. And it's taken until now where we can have this very high-profile case where a man actually gets found guilty of rape despite the fact that it was within Although, this far more complicated What breaks my heart is that he was acquitted on some of those charges and I just think what those women must be thinking. I know he has been convicted on yeah. some, but in almost all these cases... He's in jail right now. I mean, can we just enjoy that? Well, I'm sure we can. No, um, would that be wrong? You all seem to think it's very, po- it's very all very po-faced. I'll enjoy it by myself. <laughs> Poppy's really enjoying it. Do you know, before I open to the question, the one thing I'll say, I heard um, Rose McGowan interviewed on um, the World Service yesterday, and I've, I've interviewed her. She's an amazing woman. She's been through hell. And at one point he said, can I ask where you are now? And I think he meant, like, sort of mentally, and she said, I'm in the bath. <laughs> and, and, and she was just genuinely in the bath discussing this and saying how good it felt to know that Harvey Weinstein had been convicted. So, but that was literally part of the, the strategy of the private investigators that he used for accusers was to employ them to dig up stuff to paint them as, quote, difficult women. Yeah. And it is something that is 
vital to understanding both domestic violence and rape and sexual assault. That, you know, why don't women leave? Well, women are at most risk of being killed within the six months in which they leave. You know, there was a case in Australia recently, have you seen this, of the woman who left her husband, he trapped her and her kids in the car and set fire to them. Mm. You know, these are things that happen. And you know, well, also, you know, women who are being abused often are being financially abused as well. They cannot afford to leave. They don't have the financial means to leave. And also emotionally abused, right, as well. So the idea that you you become dependent on someone, they they restrict access to your friends, they monitor your phone all the time, they maybe blackmail you with stuff, they tell people, they annihilate your self-worth by saying, no one will ever love you apart from me, you're worth nothing. And all of that stuff explains why women keep going back, it explains why women don't leave, it explains why they are not the perfect victim that a court seems to want and demand in those cases. I know that there must be lots of questions so if you want to put your hand up um, I'll try and take a couple at a time and I'll take number one if we could keep your questions nice and concise we can get through lots thank you there are a few men in the room here today um thank you um do you think that the burden should be put back on women to invite more men into the conversation or do you think that actually in order to create change we should actively try and evolve men more it's a really good question men have been part of the feminist movement from the very very beginning what's your view on how what their role is and, and how it's sort of presented in a way. Yeah, the Women's Liberation Movement conference, they ran the crash. Damn right. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, 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 think it's, um, I think it's a really good question. And actually, there is a, a huge role for men in feminism. It's just, I always say, as foot soldiers, not generals. Because it always makes me think of that Onion headline, you know, man put in charge of struggling feminist movement. <laughs> um, and I think there is a kind of, I don't, I mean, I don't know why hasn't this, all this hasn't been sorted by now kind of attitude, which is, which is really, I think it's really difficult. But I asked specifically one of my colleagues, Ernest, Tom, to come and do a chair of an event that I'm doing around this book because I wanted to have a, an event with a man because he took shared parental leave. And I think it's really interesting to have those conversations with men. And Patrick Stewart, who's a patron of Refuge, always talks about the fact that domestic violence is a men's problem. Like, we need to, men need to talk to each other about this. They're the ones perpetrating it. Like, why is it our problem to solve as, as women? It's difficult because I think that there is this kind of sense that some women just feel an instant brittle, get off my turf, kind of like, you know, is, can't we just have one thing without you stamping your boots all over it? But this is, the, what, to me, the power of what I kind of want from a fifth wave of feminism, which is about demands. Because you have a demand that says, we need to reform the non-disclosure agreement system, then actually that's something that anyone, male or female, can sign up to. It's a feminist demand, but you build a coalition of support for it that absolutely men can be involved in it. I remember when you did your statue, one of the prime movers behind the scenes is the kind of Mycroft Holmes of the British establishment, Danny Finkelstein, right? He did a huge amount of work behind the scenes because Caroline had a clear aim that, that he could sign up to, that he was behind. And I think that if you, if you move to a demand-based system of feminism, then it does become a lot easier to say... Here's what we're doing. Are you with us? But also, um, so there is a fantastic Andrea Dworkin quotation that Helen once put me onto, which I'm going to mangle now. But it's something along the lines of... Um, Women are the we- only oppressed class required to sleep with their oppressors. Right, okay. I don't remember it like that. That's not how I tell it. So <laughs> in my telling, it's who share a bed with their oppressor, not required to sleep with. Anyway, the point is... So you've ruined it now. But anyway, the point is, Andrea Dworkin sort of said it in this way of, this is why it's so difficult for women to achieve liberation, because they cannot organise effectively on their own, because they can't separate themselves off, because we are intricately, intricately intertwined with men. There are fathers, there are brothers, there are sons, there are lovers, right? We love them and share our lives with them. But you can equally turn that on its head, which doesn't work if you say... have to sleep with, but does work if you say share a bed with. Because actually what that shows is that actually men are intertwined with our lives too. And they also have an interest in addressing the issues that affect the people in their lives that they love, their sisters and their mothers and their daughters. And and one of the best things that I've noticed in my lifetime is seeing my generation of men embrace fatherhood and carrying their babies in slings and changing nappies and all that stuff that my parents' generation just didn't have. And men were kept out of delivery rooms. And we can't ever emphasise how important that is. But I mean, you know, when I think about... The issues that I'm that that I address in Invisible Women of like women 47% more likely to be seriously injured in a car crash, or women 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack. Right? Men are as shocked by those statistics as women are because they don't want you know their mum to get into a car crash and 
die because the car was designed around a 50th percentile male. You know, I've had men writing to me, obviously, and women too, but about their mum who died of a heart attack because it was not diagnosed, because she didn't display the classic male symptoms. So there is a reason for men to care about these things as much as for women to care about these things. I think it is partly about the way we communicate. Okay, we're going to take number one and number five. Take them together, please. Thank you. I'm a part of the feminist society at my school. Um, what is like, the best thing that you would recommend to do um, in that society to can help move the fifth wave forward? And can I ask um, how old you are? I'm 13. 13. Fantastic. Um, number five. Let's take number five as well. I hope you can see me behind Yes, we can see you. Um, I was just going to say, so I was at the Women in Finance Awards last year, and there was a very, very senior female who was in the industry for about 35 years. And in her final spe- in her speech, she ended it off saying that she's proof there's no glass ceiling, which I firmly believe there definitely is one. And I would like to know, how would you deal with someone that said that, and what is your response to then your overall view on the glass ceiling? Oh, excellent. Well, should we take, do you want to take that one first? Yeah, I mean, my response to that is always a great saying, which is the plural of anecdote is not data. I mean, (laughs) the fact that she has managed to become a CEO is is interesting and a great reflection on her work ethic, all of that. Mm -hmm. I'm very happy about it. But but look at the statistics across the piece, right? They're in, I I think, something like 70% of FTSE 100 balls still don't have a single woman on them. I don't know if I'm getting that statistic right or not. Um, But, you know, actually... Clearly, one thing... So I'm a massive stan of the Equality Act 2010. So I'd just like to come out and say that now. Uh, And that's one of the things that... um brought in this idea that you have to report gender pay gaps across your company. So remember all the, all the fuss about the BBC presenters and showed them the top and whatever, but what it also does is show the quadrants and like mm. what, what, you know, are women ending up in the majority of lower paid roles and stuff like that. So what that does is give you huge amounts of information across the piece. And the fact that there are rare exceptions doesn't, I mean there used also, to be one kind of... Sikh guy in the BNP. It didn't mean that they weren't a fundamentally racist organisation. <laughs> but, but also, you know, it, Women like that, and it's hard to not get angry with them, but I really try to because, you know, as I explained, I was a woman like that. And that's basically a grown-up version of I'm not like other girls. You know, the girls are a bit crap. They can't get as far as I can because they just don't put the work in. You know, that's basically what that is because the stats are very, very clear. No women are not achieving but these roles to the same choices that men are. as well. I was also wondering that woman's career, what it would have been like. Um, and we know there are women who help each other when they get into positions of power, and men who yeah. do that too. Um, I was educated at Oxford University, and one of my, all my tutors were white, and two of them were quite elderly men. And they were such great champions of opening up the university colleges to women. And, you know... It, I just think it's so interesting what people choose to do on their career paths to the top. You mean in terms of who helps who? Yes. Well, I mean, the thing you have to bear in, in mind, In terms of though, a woman saying, no, you know, of there's course, no glass ceiling. But she gets approval for saying that. Yeah. And she would get penalised if she were to be promoting women. And there's very strong research on this, that actually white men get approval for being champions of women and ethnic minorities as managers. But ethnic minority managers and female managers get disapproved of and get seen as bad bosses and get seen as partial if they try and address discrimination because it's seen as in their own self-interest. So, so you'd also have to bear in mind that it's not an equal playing field in terms of who is allowed to promote equality because actually... I mean, which is another argument for why men should absolutely be involved in feminism, because they don't get penalised for being feminists in the way that women do, which is one of the great ironies of feminism. Can we address the other issue? Because it's so lovely having had a question about a woman at the end of a professional career and a young student who's 13 talking about what could they do um, as a member of their school feminist society. How cool is your school as well, may I say so? So the one thing to move the fifth wave forward... Well, since Helen is the the grand creator of the fifth wave, I'm going to... Uh, turn to her <laughs> to answer that. I mean, I really think um, start. I'm gonna, this is unnecessarily provocative, but I don't know if you have a mum and a dad, but if you do, <laughs> nag your dad to do the washing up. 
Um, if, I know I genuinely, I, I think it's really, um, I think it's, it's really about making change as close as you can to home because then you actually feel like you're doing something. I think one of the big problems about modern politics now is that the problems can seem so big. You know, mm. climate change just seems so big. What can any one of us do about it? But what you can do is make improvements on a micro level. That might be just about the fact that, you know, take a GCSE subject that is not typical for your sex. Right? If it's one you're interested in, it might not be the one that boys or girls at the school normally seem to do, but do it anyway. Just, just, just break those little boundaries around you in whatever way you can. Okay. You've been talking about um, the defining fights of feminism and the advances that have been made in the Western world. Um, isn't it time now to think, rather than think deeper and what more we can do in the Western world, to think broader and wider about all the women elsewhere in the world? Um, I mean, isn't there such terrible inequality elsewhere? Shouldn't we be doing things more like supporting white Wednesdays, um, you know, in Iran against compulsory Oh, where people are are taking off their hijabs in protest. Okay, so that's an interesting question about the kind of international picture. Yeah, I mean, my book is primarily focused on Britain just because you have to set some limits somewhere. But I I write in there about going to both Uganda and Nepal uh, to work with NGOs on girls' education. And the situation there for girls is, you know, is is 100 years behind ours. Boys are are prioritised relentlessly. And, And I think that stuff is really good, and there are great NGOs working in that space. For me, the difficulty is that one of the common ways to fight against feminism is to depict it as either elite or bourgeois or actually in other parts of the world as, as a Western imposition, right? as a kind of colonialist imposition. So I think you have to be really careful about the way in which you go about supporting feminists in their own countries. And there are some incredible feminists, as you say, working uh, organically in the Middle East rather than being the... the the kind of white Western version of man put in charge of struggling feminist movement, right? That you kind of go in and sort of and then start handing out lectures about what you think other people should be doing without being fully aware of the cultural context. So my instinct is always to support feminists around the world, but you know, this is the country I live in, I'm a citizen of, I can vote in, I pay taxes in, I have a, a responsible job within. This is the place where I can probably do most effective feminism. And actually I will take the cue from feminists in other countries about what they can best do, and, and I will take the cue from them about how I can best support them. Um, Caroline. Um, in the, the, the famous words of Gordon Brown, I think, I agree with Helen Lewis. Um, yeah, he did say that, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be facetious. I think that is an incredibly important point because you do, you know, authoritarian governments around the world do use this as a way to demonise feminists in their own country. You know, similarly, in fact, to the way feminists were demonised in the, in, in the US, um, being accused of being CIA stooges by our lovely compatriots on the left. Men, I mean. Um, but, uh, so that, that is a very real concern. Having said that, um, you know, the, the issue that I'm most focused on is the gender data gap, and that is a global issue. And it is one that will require global solutions, because the data that we collect, yes, it can be localized and there is country-level data, but in things like, for example, um, drug research, that is a global industry and will require global solutions. And so you can work in a a sort of multinational um, level, but it has to be fairly, um, I think, fairly top-level. Once you start getting into the experiences of women's lives... Um, it's really important that it's led by the women themselves and not just because of this issue about seeming like you're a Western import, but also, you know, the women who are experiencing whatever the discrimination is are the ones who are best placed to talk about it. In a similar way, actually, that I think it's not really much use for women to talk about masculinity as much as it is for men to talk about masculinity because I don't know what it's like to be brought up as a man and expected to fight and expected to can I, can I just say I, I interviewed Ollie Mann who presents a radio four show called the um oh, it's not man's it's like the, the men's room it's like a male equivalent of women's hour and he he said um after the first series he got called he was getting all these horrible emails from blokes calling him a mangina and I've never heard this thing but this whole world of men's activists criticizing other men for talking about you know their feelings or you know issues around Which masculinity is really, it's hilarious really sad but you know <laughs> i think highlights 
why men need to talk about this stuff because that's really are. weird to call someone a mangina because he discusses the feelings he has about masculinity like that's no. you know i'm sorry to be right out of time but i have to ask just one thing that suddenly occurred you know the word feisty is only used about women do we really hear men ever talked about it's difficult there was a phrase, there was a, there was, there's a book called Difficult Men, when I did my market research, oh. which is all about these protagonists of American TV shows from around the Sopranos onwards, right, who are kind of anti-heroes. But it is not used in the... So in it's like Heathcliff, essentially. He's a difficult man. It's that kind of thing. Yeah, kind yeah. Of, yeah. If, you, if you've done any brooding on a moor at any point, then, yeah, <laughs> then you're a difficult man. But no, because I think that difficulty is being, you know, your favourite Mary Wollstonecraft quote, you know, what, go on, do it about angels and women... Uh, fuck. Why are we to tell, uh, oh, fuck. tell only... girls that they, that they are like angels, but to sink them beneath women? Right, so this idea that, you, that, that men, are, men are allowed to be... Full... No, I've got it, sorry. <laughs> why, why are girls to be told that they resemble angels, but to sink them below women? Such a great quote. Right. Fucking Mary Wollstonecraft. And, 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 then, and so I think all of these ideas that, you know, that, that women have to be perfect... You know that they have to be polished, um, and and they therefore they're somehow seen as less than human because to be human is to be flawed. That's why you don't get difficult men; they're just called men. Yeah. Um, well, sadly, we that are out such of... a great note to end on. Come it on. was such a great note to end on. <laughs> the only thing I was going to add is I, I've um, I've been giving talks for a couple of years about the concept of difficult women. Sorry, I hope you haven't copyrighted that, but I've been using it as a phrase. Check please. Um, that's right. Um, and I, I remember tweeting, I'm doing this talk about my life as a difficult woman um, at Liverpool University. And Tony Blackburn, the DJ, messaged me back and said, but you're not difficult, you're great. And it was such a lovely thing to say. And then some people on Twitter went, oh, that was a bit of an Alan Partridge moment. And I just thought this is exactly what you were saying. People choose to deliberately be mean when he was just being nice. Yeah. Um, it is all right to just be nice. But I'd like to thank um, both Helen Lewis and Caroline Crowder-Perez. Um, you for coming and I know you've asked such great questions including one that stumped me a bit um, and thank you to Intelligence Squared and I hope you enjoyed it thank you so much